Welcome back, everybody. We have just been praying and sharing and just getting stirred by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but this marks 50 days um, last Sunday from when God broke out here in the church and really said, will you accommodate me? And we said, yes. Well, it's, it's powerful because that last Sunday was 50 days also to Pentecost, you can't make this stuff up, like the fact of God's timing, his orchestration in his own seasons that he's established. Um, it's powerful. And so I want to just give everyone a quick little coach. I mean, when they were praying for me before, because we're trying to start a tradition of just praying for whoever's sharing, because we really want the Lord to just speak clearly through them. And Noah said, I see a bunch of like just papers all scattered like in a mosaic. And and then, you know, Lord, just bring them together. And it really, I laughed because I have just several points here. These, these points in the beginning here, like our influence, favor, things like that, that I have to communicate with you because they're so key. you got to understand the seasons we're in and understand what God's calling us in as a people into his ways so that we could just really walk in that and and respond appropriately to it you know there's times and seasons and right now this first 50 days at least for the forerunners some of you are are just still starting to process some of the repentance and saying god change the way i think i want to just begin to shift and align my heart right and that's fine but for the forerunners they've spent 50 days doing that like daily basis pouring hearts weeping in the in in the house household of faith and just crying in the presence of God saying Lord realign my hearts this next 50 days is a new season the forerunners are breaking in to be equipped and strengthened to be prepared for battle against darkness so that we are ready to receive the harvest and I'm telling you, this next 50 days is all about preparation, equipping, strengthening, arming us to contend against principalities and powers. And I'll tell you, it is, we, we've had, there's, meant to share that a little earlier, but there's been um, a lot of demonic attempts to try to like frustrate but I mean I'm not even shaken in the least bit because God is bigger and he's here leading his movement and doing what he wants to do right and um so I want you to at least if you just have time just look up like the eight watches of prayer look up something like that and just start to to like dwell a little bit on this because I started getting into it a little bit and I just started getting stirred because the Bible's filled with like the first watch, the sixth watch, the fourth watch, on the third watch, all of these different watches. Well, if you look at it and extract all those scriptures like some have done, it begins to define what each watch really represents and what God typically does in each watch. Now, I thought it was fascinating because especially of the night watch and that that painful time from midnight till six in the morning is a powerful time. In fact, they say this is for the elite forces. Like, and so I started even thinking, like, I've thought about even our young people that are there manning those blocks, you know, and, and God is using like the the Davids with the slingshot going, you know, like, 
And I'll tell you, I've seen a pickup of people showing up at blocks. Like, it's pretty cool. It's pretty exciting that even if there's a trickle of a few more people, there's momentum building. And, you know, we're continually meet with re, uh, leaders across the region from different churches. And there's a lot of exciting things happening there. But look over this. Eight, eight, I'm not going to get into it. I, I don't have time because I really have a word of the Lord. And... I just want you to be tracking some with where we're going. This is a time for equipping and strengthening. It's a time that whenever you come here and pray, begin to start to delve into some of this stuff and, and start to like one night from 12 to 2, I just came and started like reading some of the declarations in this, 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 this 12 to 2 hour and kind of like just declaring the word over that and contending with with just darkness, because I feel God's going to cause us to begin to shift even more. There is like a Baal, you know, Elijah moment coming where we are standing and contending with principalities and powers. I am telling you, folks, there are like, I'll just say it, like there's been a lot of... Um, like demonic servants coming and here several weeks now we've seen them they're here i'm talking real people but they're serving and they're like literally just trying to frustrate but also there's a there's a double purpose here happening god is going to get them i'm telling you he's going to win their hearts because they're trying to contend against something that they have no ability and no power to actually overcome and they're going to be like what's going on like all our attempts are just backfiring in our face because God is going to be here and he is going to say, I am God and you will not contend with me. I am God and I will call the shots and I will win the hearts of my people into myself. I'm telling you, it's like, it is, we're, we're in toe deep, folks, toe deep of what God wants to do. It is like, we are just at the beginning. This is not some massive, whoa, outpouring Outside of the fact that God is massive and whoa, so if he shows up and manifests a little bit of his, him, his heart and his nature, it's massive. And that's what I'm saying here today is like, I, I want to encourage you, keep pressing in, keep like growing in your ability to pray and be sensitive to the Lord because we are in store for one of the greatest visitations this earth has seen. I am telling you. Um, it's God's pouring out in such a powerful way. Um, Steph, just come. I mean, let's just do it. Just share, share what happened this week. There's things happening on this property that are just, we're just like, what in the world is going on? It's a whole new day here. And I want her to just let you know, because most of you wouldn't know. Okay, I'm going to do this quickly, because I don't want... Um, so uh, we've just been having, like, every week, there's just wild, random, cool, Holy Ghost things happening. But last, I don't know, Tuesday, something like that, Monday or Tuesday, uh, Tuesday night, uh, they were putting the tent up, and Craig looks up, and there's this family over there weeping. And the mom is like in tears. They're right at the, the rock outside the church. Well, he brings them in and he calls us. And he's like, I, I brought these people. They're homeless. And he's like, what do I do? And we're like, well, where are they? He's like, in the fellowship hall. <laughs> and come to find out, it's a long story. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. But it, they're devout Muslims. She's a widow. 
and has found herself homeless. Her husband's family lives in America, and when he passed, she's been totally disowned by everyone around her. And they had gone, they'd come here to try to find a place to make it, and then they went to Canada, and then they had just come back, and she was just like, I just want to get back to Pakistan. Tell them they came back to a neighbor right near here. One of the neighbors is one of the family members that totally, and that's how, because we were like, how did you end up like on a street in Wyndham, New Hampshire? Like, like, right? And they had really, they'd lived in New York for a long time. So we gave them hospitality. They were thanking Allah and we said, you know, listen, we just want you to know that we're Christians and that Jesus has asked us to do this and he has seen your plight and he is answering for you right now. And so that is a seed of hope that they will never forget because they were undone by the, the generosity and so we were able to, we put them up for two days, then we sent them to Dave Van Fleet in New York, and they have a flight flying out tomorrow to Pakistan. And um, a really fun little other story, we looked at the, the, the kids and we said, what is your dreams? Like, what, if you could do whatever you wanted, and the son said, I want to fulfill my dad's dream, it was to be a chicken farmer. <laughs> and we're like, well, do you know anything about chickens? And he said, no, and we said, well, you've come to the right place. So before he left, I gave him a chicken lesson and we took him in and I showed him all how he could do chickens and he took notes. And so he's on his way to Pakistan to be a chicken farmer. I'm telling you, it's already happening. We talked about God putting this place on the map and spiritually, it's on a spiritual map, like the point that they got disowned and kicked out of a house and then ended up on the rock at the end of the drive. I'm telling you, folks, it's like God is starting to do things, and it's because he's here manifesting himself in a powerful way, and this is only the beginning of extraordinary happenings in our midst, but we got to get ready, and I really had this word on my heart that, like, um, I, I, I took a lot from this guy, Dr. Ben Dunson. He's, like... Um, editor-in-chief of American Reformer, and he's visiting professor of New Testament in, at Presbyterian Theological Seminary. But he wrote the book Individual and Community and Paul's Letter to the Romans. But I, I found this dissertation, and I just started reading it all day. I was like, this is so such powerful articulation of what was in our hearts, but it's, it's all on the idea of the dwelling place of God. And um, in the Old Testament, God's presence, so a lot of this is what I'm sharing out of his work. I didn't come up with it, although I've customized it a lot to our situation and what we're going through, But because I, I really want people to understand what we're going through and the, the enemies that we are facing. And, and I want to tell couples, too. Sorry, this is one of the other Post-it notes. Listen to me, couples, and even kids with their parents and parents with your kids, beware and be vigilant for the enemy is trying to come in and cause frustration between you. I'm telling you this because there's demonic forces and activities at play trying to bring division and trying to bring frustration and breaking down relationships. And I want you to be aware of that. And I would run as fast as you can from anyone that's critical and starting to talk badly about someone else. It is not the day to play around with that. It's like playing with fire. Like, 
Unity. It is it. That is what it is. And, and the only way that we can see God's dwelling place, and, and I'm saying like for, for couples, it's time to just, when, when you start seeing this thing go, you just say, wait, let's, let's pray. Let's just pray. Lord, we invite you into this conversation now. And we want to have a really good conversation, and we don't want to be charged by the enemy. We break the enemy's power right now so that we can talk without demonic influence. Listen, it is real. And, and we are, when you're on the map, you're not only on the map for these extraordinary things to happen, you're on the map for the enemy to say, this has to stop. So, and it, it, it starts in the home. That's where the enemy starts really playing with you, your home, your authority, your peace. So beware and be vigilant. It's, it's, we need to be on guard. But okay, so here we go, kicking in. In the Old Testament, God's presence with his people was most vividly manifested in the earthly symbols of Israel's tabernacle and temple. As symbols and types, these institutions point to a future fulfillment. That fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ, the full and final manifestation of God's presence with his people. The Israelites' high priest could only go in once a year into the holiest inner chamber of the temple, which was the locus of God's presence among his people. In doing so, the high priest served as an intermediary for the people coming into the presence of God on their behalf. At the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain separating that inner chamber of the temple, which was massive, was ripped in two, torn down the middle, Matthew 27. This event powerfully symbolized the fact that the earthly temple was no longer the location of God's presence. Jesus himself is the new temple, something he spoke of even before his death, John 2.19. As both the final sacrifice of sins and the priest who offers the sacrifice, Hebrews 4 through 10, Jesus brings us into the joy of experiencing his intimate presence of God. The reality at the heart of temple worship in the Old Testament. And we read in Psalm 15, Lord, who may reside in your tabernacle or your tent? <laughs> who may settle on your holy hill? We see one who walks with integrity, practices righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. Here's that role of salt and light. Two, he does not slander with his tongue. Proper honoring of relationships we see all throughout the rest of this thing. Nor do evil to his neighbor, nor bring shame on his friend. A despicable person is despised in this person's eyes. But he honors those who fear the Lord. This is someone who's, who's made to dwell in his tabernacle, his presence. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He takes an oath to his own detriment and does not change. Steadfast, unshakable, right? He does not lend his money at interest, which is like high interest, if there's any of you who are, you know, private investors. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, one who does these things will never be shaken. So this is like an introductory, this is kind of what it, it's about, you know, living in that tabernacle. In the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of how he would come to dwell with his people after death through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. John 14, John 1, 
even describes Jesus' entire life as tabernacling or dwelling among God's people. Jesus, as the true temple of God, brings God's people into God's presence. The New Testament, however, does not merely speak of Jesus as the new temple. The church is also called a temple. For example, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul rebukes the Corinthian believers for allowing themselves to be consumed with the earthly prestige of their leaders. He urges them to recognize that the church is God's building project, not theirs. 1 Corinthians 3.9. I, I just have to read the little bit of that First Corinthians 3. It says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, behaving only in a human way. For we are God's workers. We're God's field, God's building. And it says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that God's spirit dwells in you, speaking to the congregation here. This is a corporate thing right now in three. If anyone destroys God's temple or his household of faith, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in his age, let him be a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and they are futile. First Corinthians 6, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for sexual permissiveness rampant in the church. The reason this is so offensive is that the individual believer is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. And nothing impure can be allowed to enter God's temple. Importantly, 1 Corinthians 3 describes the entire church in its corporate existence as the temple. Whereas 1 Corinthians 6 speaks of the individual believer as the temple. And we already know Jesus Christ is the temple. And 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This captures an important dynamic in the New Testament. Salvation is not merely about the salvation of individuals as individuals. An individual believer's salvation, as important as it may be, is incomplete if it does not bring that person into a vital relationship with the corporate people, the temple of God, the household of faith. Now, this is where I've set this little foundation here, but I want to hammer right now one of the greatest hindrances, I believe, to what he is calling us into, and it is called individualism. This is rough, and I hope you don't leave. You know, um, and as we talk about this, it's not that the individual isn't important. It's not that one individual versus the community 
is more important than one another. The problem is that our modern theology and conversations are all about how the individual is the pinnacle most important thing. And it's not the case. It's a new theology. It's not the old theology like Paul was saying. It's all about the individual in community. It's not one against the other. It's both and. The individual in community. And so it's two sides of the same coin intention and beautiful orchestration and harmony. But this is where these statements stand out like a sore thumb that is just, well, either it's demonically empowered or it's just incredibly immature. People who say things like, I am a temple of the Spirit. I don't need the church. Okay, now we already went over the fact that Jesus is the temple, that we personally are the temple, and that the church collectively is the temple. So you don't throw out essential elements and then just stick to one and then just start hammering that. It's a very immature statement. Isolated Christians, which it's more rampant than you would think, because there's things like, I don't need anyone else. I have the Holy Spirit, and I am able to hear from God. I won't do anything he doesn't lead me to do. Parents, in a family setting like the church, right, How would that work out with your kids? Or spouse, for that matter. The husband saying to the family, I don't need any of you. I have the Holy Spirit, and I can hear from God on my own. The church is a family setting. It's not a corporation. It's not IBM, folks. It's like a family, and we need one another. Even hearing God, we were... The whole construct of the New Testament is built around individuals in community, not isolated island Christians that do what they want, live like they want, discern how they want. It's not, you know, that's, that's the satanic Bible. Do what you want. That is the epitome of individualism. Doing what you want, hearing from God how you want, worshiping like you want, everything's like you want, at the end. I just have some bullet points of things before we kind of go on to the challenge here, but your faith-initiated experience with Jesus lifts you out of individualistic self-absorption, leaves it behind and carries you as an individual over to a state of an individual in community. See, he doesn't want to get rid of the fact that you are an individual. It's not like you must lose yourself completely and lose your identity and just be absorbed into this blob called this church thing. No, you are an individual that is pulled out by the Holy Spirit of being self-absorbed with you as the center of your whole world where you get placed as an individual community where Christ and his work in the family of God becomes central to everything. Um, God's work in the world is never in any sense operative at an individual level as opposed to a communal one. In Paul's theology, there's no individual other than an individual in community. In other words, there's no individual outside community And there is no community that relegates the individual to the periphery, meaning that you can't go to the opposite extreme that it doesn't matter. Any of you, you don't matter. All that matters is the purpose of God, his cosmic victory. (laughs) 
You know, it's about people and it's about his household family. It's about all. You don't, you don't dissect a cat and say, oh, it'll live. I just took out its like heart. All the systems function together. The, the circulation, the respiratory. We're a body. We're a living organism, not something. Like, a, like you could just take out like a piece of roof and replace it. Here's another bull. Individuals are told by Paul that love within the community is a binding obligation. Love is a debt owed by all in the body of Christ, Romans 13.8. As such, individuals are in a very important sense not free at all. Now, individualism says, I am free. No external force will control me. I can make my own decisions. I can be unaffected by anybody else. My only concern for people is my own honor that I can help others as I see fit according to my boundaries so that I can feel like I'm a good person and I have a moral mastery over myself. It's not to do with the fact that you are in a covenant because Jesus Christ bought your life. This is intense stuff. As such, individuals are not free at all. The individual's been freed from the bondage of sin. Romans 6 through 8. In order to become a slave of righteousness and of God. Such slavery brings with it binding obligations within the community of fellow slaves to God. N.T. Wright says, this is a powerful quote, the gospel creates not a bunch of individual Christians, but a community. If you take the old route of, or root here, you say it in New England, Old root of putting justification as traditional meaning at the center of your theology, you will always be in danger of sustaining some sort of individualism. What that's basically saying is that if you have an individualistic understanding of even salvation, it's all about just the individual, then you are instantly propagating a stronghold of individualism that is robbing us from becoming what God wants to be as individuals in this living community called the household of faith. The intent of Paul writing Romans was not to show only how to show people how to find acceptance with God, but to work out an understanding of the relationship in Christ between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was a unity issue. Understanding how people of the law interface with this new grace that Jesus Christ brought and introduced, and how are they merged together and become one. And I'm telling you, folks, I, I, I read this and I went, wow, that is the key to what God's doing here in this place. He's trying to bring wineskins together. He's trying to bring young and old together. He's trying to bring unity between different countering views into this one view of individuals in community people brought together and in the unity is where the blessing of his dwelling right there in act seven we see this this whole idea of um stephen was just about ready to get stoned and he goes through this 50 verses of just talk about how rebellious and stubborn that Israel was all throughout its history. And then he says in 51, you men who are stiff-necked 
and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Now remember, think about the, go back over the past few weeks. We talked about humanism, individualism as enemies. We talked about as soon as they entered the promised land, instead of a celebration, they had a circumcision party. Not fun. And you think about the timing of God, and God's like, he shows up and says, I'm here. Oh, you accepted my invitation to accommodate me. Great. It's time to be circumcised. It's time to let me strip away things off your life, your heart, your mind. It's time for repentance. It's time for me to like align your life so that I can increase in you. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? <laughs> they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. And you have now become betrayers and murderers of him. Who you, you who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And then Stephen was put to death. One last Pauline text has an important bearing on the idea of the church as a temple. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul is, writes, moving on of how Gentiles, although once separated from God's people, have become co-heirs of God's promises through the death of Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles, it says, who have faith in Christ are being made by the power of the Holy Spirit into one structure, being joined together and growing into a holy temple of the Lord, a dwelling place of God. In this passage, Jesus Christ is described as the cornerstone of the temple of God. Again, Ephesians 2, which indicates his absolute authority over this new temple. You know, finally, Revelation 21 makes it clear that there will no longer be a temple in the new creation because God's presence has somehow been, not because God's presence has been diminished, but precisely the opposite, since sin and impurity have been completely banished from the renewed creation. There is no place where God's saving presence is not felt. This is what God's doing right now. He's preparing his church. He's removing all hindrances. Sin, impurity, restoring wholehearted devotion to receive the great harvest. There's a lot of work to be done in us. There is a lot of work that needs to be done in us. And, you know, I think, I think a barometer in our community will be how much percentage of our church will actually come and pray. Because this is what I venture to say. If someone, and I know there's some exceptions, but if someone is not coming to pray, they're probably not praying at all. And this isn't meant to condemn. It's meant to say there is a call from God to come and pour your heart and give devotion. And I like what someone said a couple weeks ago. They're like, oh, I love the church being available 24-7 because it's like, yeah, you can work out at home, but it's a lot better if you go to the gym and get in a routine because you're like doing it, you're going and doing it. And you get in a habit. Well, it's the same thing with prayer, folks. Like, this is your spiritual gym. 
You come, you begin to pray, and you begin to pour out, and I, I want to challenge you. If you're one of the few that is, like, staying home and praying, great. But I'm telling you, God is calling more than 10 or 20% of people in this 300-member body to come and pray and seek his face and call on heaven. I'm telling you, there's something powerful that's happened in this place, in my life, over the past 50-some days. And it wouldn't happen if I was just sitting at home. I'm telling you that. God's stripping. He's realigning. He's causing hearts to be turned upside down. This isn't a game show. It's like God really calling his people. The whole thing started with an invitation. Will you accommodate me? And it wasn't to me. It was to us. As a body. And he was saying, will you accommodate me? And I believe we're going to stand in heaven and we're going to see this replayed. Will you accommodate me? And the angels who set seals on people's heads and hearts and minds as he did in Ezekiel, like 9 and 10. He said, listen, go out, angels, and set seals upon all the people who are troubled about the sin in the land. And then those who didn't have the seal were annihilated. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say it with the implication that if you don't show up, you'll have a, you won't have a seal. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God does take account. And this isn't to condemn you, any of us. It's meant to say, will you respond to God? Or will you be like the many, many, many people, the majority, that were stiff-necked and rebellious and stubborn? Does that make sense? I mean, does that make sense? I'm, I'm saying like, I'm, I'm trying to plead, I'm trying to encourage, I'm trying to envision and say, there is a call from God. Respond to Him in these basic ways. It's not living here 24-7. It's coming and giving a daily devotion to the Lord. And he will do something supernatural in our midst. He'll strip away the spirit of the world. He'll strip away individualism. And you won't be sitting here going, oh, this is horrible. You're going to be sitting here going, Lord, why did I give you such a hard time? Like, you weren't, you were for me, not against me. You wanted to bless me. And it feels so good. It is the best 50-some days of my life on this earth. Just standing in awe and marvel of how good God is. All kinds of supernatural stuff happening, like, Crooked paths being made straight. Things being made easier before the Lord. You're just like, the, the hard stuff is hard. It's hard to deal with your yuck inside yourself. But the, I know from my own life, the way God's done it is I don't know what he's doing. I just start, I'm in his presence, and I just start crying. And I sit there, and I've said, like, Lord, what are you doing? I don't know why I'm acting like this. But it's just being in the presence and just and I've seen it. People who come, they just start praying and then they start crying 
people start praying and they start getting overwhelmed by the reality of what they're reading and praying about. I've seen it all ages. People have come and started just praying and then start just receiving an encounter from God and they start repenting and just start pouring their heart out. At, at worst case, if you didn't experience one thing, you would be stirring your heart with the living word of truth. You'd be reading it. You've been praying. You've been inviting God into your, into your innermost parts. Remember Isaiah 61, healing, restoration. The whole first part was the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That people would be set free and healed. And then that they'd become trees planted by the Lord. Deep roots, unshakable in storms, sustained by the rivers of living water that the roots are drawing from. And then the final thing, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up former devastations. They'll repair ruined cities. The desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. We had Pakistani family that were strangers to this area come and take care of the farm with her two days. This is like a, a profound prophetic fulfillment for us. Like in the most literal way you could. <laughs> Some churches don't have farms, so it wouldn't be as literal. <laughs> You'll be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and you will boast in their riches. Instead of shame, you'll have a double portion. That's why I believe some of the stuff I talked about earlier, about the favor of the Lord, he's restoring and reversing what the enemy has come in and meddled with for so many years. Instead of humiliation, they'll shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them reward. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations. Not only will you be known as the ministers of God, but your children and their children will be known as the ministers of God. Oh, their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them will recognize them because there will be a fame that comes upon the church when this great harvest comes in. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will be joyful. He's clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a groom puts a turban and a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth produces sprouts and as the garden causes things to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. Oh, finally, I just want to leave you this one thing. That's how I'm closing. I'm closing with Ezekiel 37, 27. And the context is all about the dry bones. We all know about the dry bones passage. But at the end of this passage is this profound verse of what I'm talking about. Verse 23, they will no longer defile themselves with idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. Individualism. It is an idol. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. 
He continues, my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the, in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land of their ancestors. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be the prince forever. Listen to this. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy. When my sanctuary is among them forever. Dry bones live. Folks, I feel there's a call today, a fresh invitation to come to the Lord and lay it all down and answer the call to give him daily devotion. It's only God that's going to change your life and make wrong things right. It's only God that's going to turn your life upside down and rebuild it. It's only God that's going to be able to do the things that, frust- that you're frustrated with that won't change. God's the only one. You are not. As long as you are the center of your devotion and your life and your affections, you're going to be frustrated because you are inadequate. The only one who is adequate is here making the invitation, will you leave yourself, die to yourself that I might live. If you'll lay down your affection and your idolatry to yourself and your things and your boundaries and all of your stuff, I'm not saying boundaries are bad. I'm saying your boundaries are bad. They need to be God's boundaries. What is God saying? What is God dictating? What is God fashioning and forming in you? It doesn't matter what you think, your wisdom, your opinions, all of your thoughts. They don't matter. It's about God's thoughts. What is he saying to you? Walk in obedience in community and begin to give devotion to the Creator. Father, I pray for all of us. I thank you, Lord God, too, that there is, there is not hopelessness or condemnation. There is a call, a plea to evade and let go of all our self-constructs of what we think as humans. Let go of this individualism and this humanism and Lord, and put you at the center of it all as the burning fire, the altar, that cross that we lay our lives down and say, Father, we surrender. Come and be our God. We agree to be your people, Lord. And bow down and say, God, you are our God. 
I pray that the Lordship of Christ and the fear of the Lord would just be poured out all over us. Lord God, that you would have your way. And Father, young or old, we pray that you would break our will. That there would be no stubborn, stiff-necked people in here, Father. That we'd be tender-hearted. Hearts of flesh and not stone. Yielded lumps of clay that aren't fighting their master. Father, I pray, I pray all over this place that you would just begin to speak. Lord, your sheep hear your voice and you are the shepherd and you speak. I pray for you to speak loud, speak clearly. Draw your people, draw us all into unity and alignment that in that place of unity, there'd be a commanded blessing of presence from you. And Lord, we pray that you increase, Lord. And I know the only way for you to increase and answer that prayer is for us to decrease. And I pray, I pray for this whole body that we would be ones who would yield and be willing to decrease that you might increase. Oh, we love your presence, Lord. You are worthy. You are worthy of it all. And I pray that, Lord, every single person in this place would become yielded. And I pray that you just speak. Let's respond to God right now. Come on, let's just respond to God. Come on, he loves you. He knows you. But he's also the creator of heavens and earth that will not tolerate stubbornness and stiff-neckedness and doing what you want to do forever. Lord, Lord, be our God. Let us be your people. Be our God and let us be your people. Lord, I pray that there'd be an authentic encounter with the cross, the living cross, that we would die at that cross, that we might be resurrected by you from the dead. We receive all of your sacrifice and what you've done. Come on, let's just continue to respond to God here today. I just want to share something real quick. Uh, I'm from Massachusetts, and God's just been stirring me up again. Uh, back in the late 80s, I was driving in my truck, and the Spirit of God spoke to me. And growing up with Vietnam, I never served in the military, but I've always had the utmost respect for our veterans. And I was driving down my truck. I lived in a little town with 1,100 people. And the Spirit of God spoke to me. And he said, have you ever met a Marine that wasn't proud to be a Marine? And I said, no. He said, that's because it's an honor to serve. And I got about three miles down the road and he spoke to me again. And he said, are you in the army of God or are you in the family of God? I said, well, Lord, I'm in the army of God. He said, good, then shut up and march. And I can remember getting to my house and thinking to myself, this is, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? And what you're saying right here about the favor and the, with the politics and the people and the stuff like that, you want to get the attention of the community, you get the attention of the children. You get the attention of the youth, and you will get the attention of the community. And we served as youth pastors for like 14, 15 years.
in one church. And we went into eight public schools, a stretch of 20 miles down Route 2 corridor. And when we had our, eventually had our meeting on a Friday night, I didn't want it in a church, I wanted it in a neutral place. We used the Gardner City Hall. We had about 600 teenagers that attended. I set the chairs up with the custodians so it wasn't one of those evangelical counts. You know, I know how many chairs were set up. I know there were no empty seats. And we gave an altar call at a friend of ours has since gone on to glory, Joseph Jennings. And when he gave his altar call, we had 183 kids that gave the first time salvations. We had almost 300 that came down to the altar. I'm telling you, when he said, it's time to move, it's time to march again. I mean, I realize I'm 65 years old, but there's a stirring on the inside that God is going to do something. And don't sell yourself short just because you may live in a small community. My town only had 1,100 people, you know. But God's doing something. He's doing something. And I really appreciate what you guys are doing here. I wouldn't have driven up here this morning. I would have went to church where we normally go. But I know that just something's happening. And I want to be part of it again. You know, God's setting us free and liberating us, yes, so that we can be free. And there's an incredible byproduct that we receive from being free and being in the experiential reality of what God's relationship is in our life. But I just want to say something. There's so much more than that that's happening right now. God is setting us free so we can be free and be in communion and fellowship with Him and not be weighed down and entangled by the things of His life. But the Lord is preparing His church for something. He's maturing His church. He's freeing His church up to run again. Hebrews 12 says it like this. And it's a call to the church. It's like we often call God to detangle our lives. But He said, put aside, Paul says to the church. Put aside every weight and entanglement, especially the sin that so easily besets you. It's an urgent call. Right now, there is a call to real allegiance in the earth right now. And laying aside every weight, every entanglement, every sin that so easily besets us, causes us to just sit in the muck of despair and not function as we're called to function as the church. But the freedom that God is doing in us, the detanglement in the place of beholding him and communion and fellowship, just the work of the Lord as we lay these things aside, God is maturing his church because he wants us to operate and exercise his authority. I believe this on a whole other level. I believe the face of American Christianity is going to change in one generation. And it's for great harvest. It's for his namesake. It's for his glory. There is an invitation. Some of you just say, you know, I don't know what some people say, but I know this. <laughs> I feel like this right now, what God is doing is just an invitation. And there is a real sobriety that I'm, I'm urging you to allow to get into your heart about are you going to say yes or no to it? We live in America where there is so much freedom and it's incredible. 
but in a major way, it has lulled us to sleep and just come into a form of religion, but denying all the power that we're supposed to walk in as the church. It's cozy, it's comfortable, it's a couple hours a week. But when we start to encounter the living reality, like Isaiah, I saw him high and lifted up. And the robe of his train filled the temple, the train of his robe. When we start to encounter him in intimate places of communion and fellowship, the reality, the burning reality, it starts to permeate and overtake our passions, our desires, our resources, our time. It's got to. Either if it doesn't, then it's, it's a, in a way, it's a game to us. It's religiosity to us. Because the reality of who he is, if it's on the inside and encroaching every area of our life, it starts to change the way we approach everything. We see this life as so much more temporary and less about building a kingdom and an empire and more about being a part of a kingdoms that will never end, right? I guess is the easiest way to say it. And this is the invitation right now. I believe there is a sweeping tide that's going to come across, but I've... I'm fearful that in the move of God that's coming in the earth, if we haven't said yes in this preparation type way, it's going to offend our hearts because of what it demands from us. And there is a kindness and a wooing from God to come to him right now. There's a kindness that's saying, draw near to me. Draw near to me. I want to make you everything I've called you to be. I want to exercise my strength and my power in and through you. But when he comes like a tidal wave, I believe the middle ground is going to get washed away in Christianity, in American Christianity. The lukewarmness, the gray areas, the holding on to this life and not wanting to only give what I want to give to God. We're going to be, there's going to be some levels of offense. And I know I say that like I know in fullness what I'm saying. I, I don't claim to know in fullness what I'm saying. But, but, but burying myself in his heart in this place, I know there's this idea that's, that's growing in me. It's, it's, it's creating an ache and a longing in me not to resist what God wants to do on the inward places in preparing me for what the days ahead are going to hold. And I want to encourage, and I just feel like this overflow out of this place is say yes to the invitation of God right now. There is something unique that's happening here, and it's, there's no manipulation in this. Listen, I have, I have set time in my own house, in my own prayer room closet, apart for God, and there's encounter and communion and fellowship with that. There is, and like times where it's just such intimacy, and I'd want to be no other place, but there's something so unique that's taking place in what's coming out of the outflow of this corporate canopy that he's building right now. And to me, it's an indicator that I want to be there. I want to be a part of a unique expression and move that he's doing. My prayer life changing, the concept of who I am as a Christian is radically being transformed in this place. And I just encourage you, I encourage you just to say yes. It's not knowing all the days ahead. It's not knowing like what the yes is going to fully formulate into. But I encourage you, if you don't know, you're on the fence, right? About breaking out of like the loose, ultimately is this, this might sound sharp, but this, for me, this is what it was. It's the loosening of my control of my life. My family, my future, my business, my ministry, everything. It's loosening the grip of my control and simply saying yes. I don't know what that's all going to turn into, 
But the more I see him, the more I am fixing my gaze, the more I am laying aside the, the things that I know are robbing me and causing just the leaking of my life where anything that's getting poured in just leaks out, the more that those places get stopped up and the more my heart has just been given to him, I realize that this is what this is all about. This little short 80-year span we got. It's what it's all about. His heart represented through people in the earth. His power and the demonstration and the authority of his kingdom. It's what's coming in a, in a greater way where he is going to topple altars of unrighteousness in the spirit in this land because a harvest will be loosed as a byproduct of it. I believe that many people have seen in New England that there have been incredible, incredibly hard to do works of God. I've heard over the years, just long time ministers saying, man, what you do in 20 years in New England, you know, you get the fruit of what you do one year in Texas. You know, it's like there's such resistance. People come with zeal and then it just fizzles and, and dies out. And I hear these stories of all these people. And in prayer, I was just feeling like God was saying, Noah, I'm coming in such a way that the spiritual environment over this land is going to get flipped upside down, that the ministries of unrighteousness will find no effectiveness here, and they will be the ones leaving. They will be the frozen chosen. No, I believe that. So, Lord, I just... God, I know what this is meaning to me, and I hope I'm making sense, Lord. I just pray that, God, the wooing of your heart, God, the drawing of your heart to this place of abandonment to you, Jesus, the relinquishing of control of our life, God. I just, I just pray, God, you would allow us to see you rightly, that there would be just such willingness in us that would come from seeing who you are and your worthiness. In Jesus' name.